That was weak. Thank you. Hey, you know, we had uh, yesterday, we had a women's conference, and, uh, and I told them, it was funny, it just kind of came out when I kind of welcomed everybody, because I, I was trying, to, we didn't have any idea how many people, how many women would actually come, and I said, in the days of COVID, and I thought that sounded like First Chronicles something, 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 in the days of COVID, but there was about 40 women all day long yesterday screaming for Jesus and worshiping and studying the word under those seven or eight uh, uh, speakers. It was really a, it was a cool thing. And so we're thankful that, uh, that we had that yesterday. I want to mention one more thing about the blood drive that Richard was telling you all about. They're also, the Red Cross is also doing free, uh, free COVID-19 um, antibody test. So when you, when you donate blood, you'll get a free antibody test with that. It's like a buy one, get one free or something. But so if that'll incent you to come and give blood because the, we really, you know, the, the Red Cross really needs blood. So I encourage you all to do that. The, the last announcement I want to give you is that we are going to have a prayer walk next Sunday right after church. Going to meet here right after church and then go over to Midland Middle School and just kind of pray around the school. Um, uh, there, there are several folks that have asked churches around Columbus to just find a school and go pray over that school for health and for, you know, for wisdom in the leadership of the school district and so forth. So we're going to do that. And so it, whoever, if you're watching online right now and you don't feel comfortable being in here uh, on Sunday morning and, but you feel okay about being outside, show up here about 11.30 or 12 um, next Sunday and we'll all go pray over there together. So we are, you know, last week, uh, Richard kicked off kind of the next series in this walk through the, the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the, to the Roman church. Richard kind of kicked that off, and, and uh, the series is named, the name of the series is Justified. It's Justified. And Richard, last week he introduced y'all to this, this concept of, of justified, and he said that justification or to be justified was to be acquitted or it was to be, uh, to be made right with God. Today I want to dig into it. I want to dig into it. I want to dig into justification. And really in particular, the name of this message today is a case for faith. And so I want to dig into this idea that justification is by faith. And it is by faith alone. It is not faith plus this. It's not Jesus plus that. It is by faith alone. And Paul begins he kind of began at the end of chapter 3. That's where Richard was last week. But he really starts unfolding this whole thing in Romans chapter 4. So today the question is going to be, how is it that we are justified? How is it that we're acquitted? How is it that we are, uh, that we are made right with God? Because you know in Paul's day, if you backed up about 2,000 years, there were these folks and, and they were called Judaizers, Judaizers. Uh, and they were saying that this whole justification thing happened through religious works, through doing stuff. You have to do this, you have to do that. And Paul, uh, Paul really addresses that here, and then he really jumps in it again head on in the book of Galatians. And so the message that these folks, these Judaizers were preaching was that you had to go through a bunch of uh, a bunch of rituals and a bunch of ceremony and a bunch of religious works to get right with God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's all wrong. You repent and you believe. You repent of your sin and you put complete faith and trust in Christ. And so here in Romans chapter 4, Paul lays out 
a case for a believer being justified by faith and not by any kind of, of works. And he uses Abraham as an example. Now, Abraham's story is in the book of Genesis. It kind of begins in chapter 12 of Genesis, and it really runs all the way through chapter 25. Um, and we'll probably bounce a little bit in and out of, of different, a few different places in Genesis today. But Paul makes this contention. He makes this case. Because you've got to remember, and I think I said this several weeks ago, that Romans is almost like this courtroom setting. And Paul is the attorney. And he's making these arguments back and forth. And sometimes he's, he's arguing with this mythical objector person. But he makes different cases throughout the book of Romans. And so here he's saying, if you can be justified only by works of the law, how could Abraham have possibly been justified 400 years or so before the law was ever given? And Genesis says that Abraham believed, he believed, and he was credited with righteousness. In other words, he was justified. Abraham was justified. He met God's criteria before the law had been given. He met God's criteria before, before circumcision. So Paul's point, major point here is how can you say that you, he's really talking to this objector, really talking to these Judaizers. How can you say that you've got to do all this stuff to be saved when Abraham so clearly was saved? Let's read the first few verses of chapter 4. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And so when Paul says that, he's fixing to go back and, and quote some Scripture. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, because he worked. If somebody works, the wages, they're due the wages. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul he jumps all over this false teaching about works right off the bat in verse 2. He clearly says it ain't about works because if, if it was, then Abraham would have a right to brag about it himself because it had been something that he did. And then Paul declares that it is by faith that we are justified. Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And if you don't have a worship guide, raise your hand because we've got some fill-in-the-blanks uh, in the worship God and all the scripture uh, quotes. So this Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness is a quote from Genesis 15, verse 6. But what does it mean? What does it mean when the text says that Abraham believed God? Does it mean that Abraham was justified because of the things that he did? No, he believed. Oh, or, or does it mean that he lived a clean life and a righteous life and a holy life and a pure life? No, it means that he believed because, and he had faith, and he trusted. And, and yeah, he had lapses. If you read those 12 or 13 chapters in Genesis, and I challenge you to do that, he had lapses. Some of them are major league lapses, and they're all covered throughout that account in Genesis. Y'all, this book does not teach at all that if you're a Christian, then you will live a lapse-free life. If you are a Christian, then you will never stumble, and you will never fall, and you will never fail. That is not what the scriptures teach, it doesn't teach that at all. 
The scriptures teach that when a believer stumbles, he gets back up and he repents and he turns back. So the whole word repentance, I'm turning away from my sin and I'm turning toward, towards the Lord. Abraham clearly was a believer in spite of all the struggles that he had. So what is it that Abraham believed? Did Abraham believe, now think about when this was, this was around 1800 or so B.C., about 1800 or so years before Christ. Did Abraham believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay the price for his sin, was buried in a tomb, and walked out alive three days later? Is that what Abraham believed? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. But I do believe that he believed in a promise-keeping God, in a way-making God. And there have been glimpses Y'all, this is how we read Scripture. There have been glimpses of the gospel since the very beginning. There have been glimpses of the gospel going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 15, let's start in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. That's what Abraham was called at the time, Abram, in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. And this is the Lord talking to Abraham. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is going to be Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. The Lord brings Abraham outside. He says, Look up. Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He, Abraham, believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. In that original language, y'all, verse 6 has one, two, three, four, five words. Five words. Key words packed with meaning. Three of them really key words. Believed, counted, and righteousness. Believed, counted, and righteousness. Abraham believed God. Literally in the Hebrew, the word is amen. So it's amen, God. I bind into what you got to say. Amen, amen, amen. I believe. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. He gives a little more insight into this. Starting in verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it is those of faith who are called the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's from Genesis chapter 12. And then verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see that? God preached the gospel beforehand, beforehand. So y'all, I believe that what gripped, like just what gripped Abraham, it was not that he would have a, a big number of descendants, that he would not have, you know, 100,000 great-grandchildren, a lot of ancestors. No, I think what gripped him was this, that, that a spiritual blessing would come through his line. Y'all, the promise of salvation that would come through his line is what I believe got him up in the morning. I think he understood in some sort of a way that the blessing was not just in his descendants, but that through his descendants, Messiah would come. 
Now listen, I, I can't begin to stand up here and tell you in some, somehow or another that, that I know how much Abraham truly grasped. I don't, but I think he knew some. I think God downloaded some wisdom and some, some information to Abraham. Think about when Abraham took his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah. This is one of the clearest pictures in Scripture of what happened on the cross at Calvary. What did God say here? He said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So Abraham takes Isaac up to this mountain, his son, and on the way up, Isaac could see that they didn't have an animal with them. They didn't have a, an animal with them to sacrifice. And here's another thing. The best evidence is that Isaac was not a little boy. If you ever see art that depicts that, that part of Genesis, you see Isaac as a little boy. The best evidence is that Isaac was a full-grown young man who obviously could have gotten himself out of the pickle that he was in. You know, you picture Isaac as a three- or four-year-old. He was probably more like 18 or 19 or 20. And he could have said, Dad, Dad, this is, I think about if this was Will, my youngest son, Will. Like, Dad, this is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. In fact, you're the old man. How about if I sacrifice you? I mean, that's what I think about it that way. Maybe that's twisted. I get it. But here's the deal. Isaac, being a perfect image of Christ in the Old Testament, willingly submitted to what his father said. Abraham believed, the Scripture tells us, that if necessary, God would raise his son from the dead. And Isaac asked his dad, like, bro, where are we going to get, you know, where are we going to get a sacrifice? Where's an animal going to come from? And, I th and Abraham's response, I believe prophetically, he says, son, God will provide for himself a lamb. And he did. As he raises up the knife, he sees in a thicket the sacrificial animal. And so surely Abraham had some sort of insight in that particular story. And there were all kind of other events in Abraham's life that I believe pointed towards the gospel. And no, I don't think there's any way that he had the kind of complete knowledge that we have on this side of the cross. But I think God certainly gave him some insight. He believed in God. And it's just as simple as that. With as much faith as he had, with as much understanding as was available to him at the time, Abraham believed God Abraham had faith and trust in God, and he was credited with righteousness. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, y'all, this word, this word uh, justified, it means to have a credit placed on your account. The Greek word that describes the process is used about 11 times in chapter 4 of Romans. And sometimes it's, it's uh, translated counted and sometimes credited and sometimes imputed, I-M-P-U-T-E-D, imputed sometimes. The word justified really almost has like a, um, like a twofold kind of meaning. First of all, on, on one side of the coin is, is, is that uh, it speaks to, to the forgiveness of all your sins. It speaks to the forgiveness of your sins. That means that, means that the moment, y'all, the second that you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is the moment, the second 
that all of your sins are forgiven and they're done away with. Don't just gloss over how ginormous that is. In a split second, all your sins are put as far as the east is from the west. Do not gloss over how big a deal that is. Y'all in a synagogue in, in uh, Antioch in Pisidia, in Acts chapter 13, Paul's preaching in a synagogue, and Paul says this in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, he's talking to Jewish folks, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, he's in a synagogue, that through this man, obviously he's talking about Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes, not everyone who does this and does that, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That is crystal clear, crystal clear. So justification includes forgiveness. God has forgiven you. God has pardoned you. Richard used the language acquitted. God has acquitted you. He's taken your sins and he's blotted them out. He's taken them away, right? He's taken them away. And just, so justification, it not only speaks um, to what God has taken away, he's taken away the sin, but what he has put back in its place. So it's more than just forgiveness and the removal of all the guilt and all the shame and all the condemnation that comes along with sin. Now, if that's all that it, it, that it included, I'm kind of okay with that. Okay, but it doesn't. There's more to it. It's also what he has done for you and what he has given to you. It's a legal determination. It's a legal act where our status in front of God changes. It is where he declares me guiltless before him. When you say yes... It is where he declares you guiltless. When God justifies a person, he does so by placing the righteousness of Christ on our account. So my sin debt is gone. It's gone, he does away with it. And I get Christ's righteousness. Y'all, that's a pretty good deal. Like there is, no, that's why it's not, it's, it's not just the good news. It is the best news ever. It is the greatest news that could, there could ever be. He takes my sin away, and then I get Christ's righteousness. That's the great exchange that took place on the cross. And so let's assume for a second that you are $5 million in debt. Creditors are banging on your door. Your phone is ringing nonstop, right? Zero hope of ever being able to even begin to think about handling and satisfying that enormous debt. You never could pay it back. And then suddenly you remember that, I don't know, you remember that Tyler Perry is your uncle. I don't even know why I said Tyler Perry. I don't know how you would not know that Tyler Perry is your uncle. But let's just say Tyler Perry is your uncle. Roll with me. So you call up Uncle T and you ask for the $5 million. And Uncle, uncle Tyler had just bought uh, the Air Force Base in Atlanta, so Uncle Tyler's got some dollars, right? And so he says, pocket change, bruh, and he just pays off your debt. Bam, just like that. You got this mountain of debt laying all on top of you, and Uncle Tyler pays it off. And you are so, you cannot even, if you can take your mind to that place at what that would feel like, you're so thankful and you're so grateful that you had this mountain on top of you, and in one split second, that mountain was gone. But then Uncle Tyler calls you back in a couple days, 
And he says that he was thinking about this propensity that you have to keep getting yourself in trouble. You keep getting yourself in a pickle. And he says, I put a little money in your account. Why don't you go check it out? And so you get on your rickety old bicycle and you, drive, you, you ride it down to the ATM and you check the balance in your account. And not only did he pay the $5 million off, but he put $10 million in your account. So not only did he pay your debt, he put $10 million in your account. Y'all, this is what God has done for us. He forgave all the wrongs that you have ever committed. He's removed all of that sin. And now he's placed the Savior of the world's righteousness in your account. He's put it in your account. And you may say, oh, I don't deserve that. I'm, like, I'm unworthy. I'm not worthy. And no, you're not. And no, I'm not. You never were. I never was. You never will be. I never will be. It has nothing to do with your worthiness. It has nothing to do with my worthiness. We bring nothing, y'all, to the table other than the sin that made it all necessary. So it's not about our worthiness. It's God's overflowing grace that has been extended to me and you. And you and I are wrong. We're just flat wrong when we think that we have to, to do things to somehow earn it. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing, Paul's asking a question here, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, in other words, the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, in other words, for the Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, the sign. It was a symbol. It probably didn't feel like a symbol. It probably felt real, but it was the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And so in those verses, Paul is absolutely refuting the idea that you have to perform some ritual or some ceremony to get right with God. Paul's saying that justification, which is this new, uh, this new standing before God, this new status in front of God, that it was not dependent on, on circumcision or on any other observance or action or anything. Again, Abraham was counted right before he was circumcised. It was his faith. It was his faith that was counted as righteousness. Not anything he did, not anything he earned. And so if you have spent your whole life trying to earn God's approval, stop. I have a good friend, Richard Moore. He would tell you that he spent many years trying to earn God's approval. You will never earn his approval. Never. Never, because we don't bring that to the table. We don't bring it to the table. What the Lord may be saying to you today in this room or watching online. He may be saying to you, stop or don't. Don't read the Bible. Don't pray. Don't serve. Don't give. Don't worship to seek my approval. Do these things, if you're a Christ follower, do these things, be, the Lord may be saying this, do these things because I already approve of you. I already love you. I could not possibly love you anymore. I approve of you already. 
I bent my knees at the foot of the cross, and I said, yes, God approves me. And it is not because of anything that I have done. It is not because of anything that, that you have done. But it is because of what Jesus has already done. Do you all get that? I bring nothing to the table. I bring nothing to the cross. The cross brings everything to me. Everything to me. You put your faith in him. You put your trust in him. And he puts his righteousness in you. Now, when that status changes, y'all, now the Lord looks at you differently. He looks at you differently. He looks at you and he sees you through Christ. It's almost like you get this white robe from, from Jesus and, and when you say yes, you're wrapped in that robe and when the heavenly, your heavenly Father looks at you, he doesn't see all the filth that's underneath. He sees Christ's righteousness. That's what imputed means. You are imputed with Christ's righteousness. Let's start to wrap this up a little bit. What kept Abraham, what kept him going when it would have been so natural and so easy for him to doubt? Because he is a really old dude, really old dude. So is his wife. She's a really old lady. And God says, you're still going to have a child. Hang in there. The results of this child is that, that your seed will be countless. And I'm going to take you to a place that I'm going to show you. And Abraham probably at the first is like, okay, like I get it, but that sounds a little far-fetched. So how was Abraham to hang tough? Look at verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That's quoting Genesis again. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written just for his sake alone, not just for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the, uh, from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Hope sustained Abraham. Hope in the word of God. Hope in the fact that God is a promise keeper, right? He believed that, that, that God had spoken. And it was in a seemingly um, hopeless situation, seemingly hopeless circumstance that Abraham, mired in this hopelessness, believed, hoped, trusted, had faith. What was the, what was the circumstance, y'all? What was the circumstance? If you look at those verses, the circumstance, his plumbing didn't work. The joker was 100 years old. Sarah was 100 years old. And God is telling them they're fixing to have a baby. They're about to have a baby. That he's going to be the father of a huge nation, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of descendants. The text said that his body was as good as dead, y'all. You got to look beyond your immediate circumstances. You may be in a pit so deep you can't even see the top of it, but you've got to look beyond your immediate circumstances. And that is a tough thing to do. I get it. We look at our problems. Raise your hand if you've ever done this. Looked at your problem and thought your problem's bigger than God. 
You looked at your problem, you said, how in the world am I going to get through this? And the point is, you ain't going to get through it. You lean on him, he's going to get you through it. How is God going to possibly work in this situation that I find myself in? You know, God, how in the world are you going to turn this thing around? Y'all, I want to tell you about a a story about a, a, a young lady, somebody in our church family. Her name is Kelly Bowie. And they have been a part of this church since 2010. Kelly was an executive at Aflac. Sean is retired military. 2016, they moved from Columbus to Pennsylvania for a new, pretty high-level job, uh, executive-level job for Kelly. But they have remained faithful members of our church, you know, the whole time. I mean, they, they watch every Sunday. They continue to stay engaged even from you know, about a 1,000 miles away. They have been and continue to be faithful tithers to this church. Kelly is a super, how many of y'all know, know Kelly Bowie? Kelly is the Energizer Bunny. Kelly is a massive type A kind of person. And I bet she has never been without a job, I bet, since she was 15 years old. And that is until January of this year. She was laid off. I talked to her Tuesday for about an hour and 45 minutes, because if you know Kelly Bowie, she will talk. And so we talked on Tuesday, and, and we were talking, and she, here's what she said. She said at that time, she said, I had no idea at the time that I was being launched into such a challenging time during a global pandemic. That Kelly is a planner, very type A planner person. She, she committed to spending this time off productively, knowing that she's going to find another job, you know, real quick. Uh, well, obviously, she's looking for a job, and, and, you know, in the middle of millions of people being, you know, every week joining the ranks of the unemployed, but she said while that was going on, she was going to strengthen, uh, do whatever she could do to strengthen her, her relationship with the Lord uh, by spending more time in His Word, and she was going to get her health back on track, start exercising and eating right, and after, so after dozens of interviews, and the, the job hunt was kind of progressing pretty good into February and then into early March, and she felt like she was a couple of days away from getting a job offer uh, when on March the 9th, and I don't know if for y'all if it's like it is for me, like the last, like from about the end of February to about the middle of June, like I can't remember any of that. It's like this big four-month blur, and so if you remember, it was around March the 9th when, uh, when states started shutting down and companies started pulling back. And so all of the opportunities that she thought were coming kind of all dried up. And so she's thinking, what in the world is God doing here? Like, I've been working since I was 15 years old. And so she applied for anything and everything, even things outside of her skill set because there just wasn't anything out there. And, but she continued to pray for clarity. That's her word. She said, I'm praying for clarity, and I'm praying for a job to find me a career, a job where it'll bring glory to God, she actually, in six months, she had over 150 interviews, 150 interviews, and she was getting declines on some, and she's getting ghosted by many, many companies, had the interview, and then crickets from the companies, and she, in her words, she used the word crushed, she said, I was crushed, she's questioning herself, she's questioning her skills, she's questioning her self-worth, she was desperate, and she was really eking into the place of being depressed and really being in depression. Six months into this thing, which was just several weeks ago, she was out walking 
by herself and praying by herself. And she asked God, she said, just show me the path. Just show me the path that you, Lord, have for me. And so she said that the next, she prayed that the whole walk. And she said the next day, it just hit her like a ton of bricks. She realized that all these opportunities weren't coming. They weren't coming because God was using this season to teach Kelly Bowie patience, which is way outside of her wheelhouse. Anybody here feel like patience is not one of your virtues? Well, that's, that's Kelly. She said he was using this time to, to teach me that it was about his will. And not just about his will, but about his timing and not hers. He was trying to teach her to trust him. Y'all, it's easy to trust God when times are just all wonderful, right? It's a different animal when you're in a pit. And so she finds herself in the pit, and he, she said he's using this time to teach me to trust him, to teach me to believe what he says, to, to, to teach me to have faith in him, even when, it, when the circumstances don't look like I should. So she said that next day, she said, I prayed out loud and asked God to forgive me for trying to rush him. This is like classic Kelly Bowie. I asked God to forgive me for trying to rush him and for stepping out ahead of him somehow like I knew better. And so she trusted him, and this was her word. She said, I surrendered completely everything about my life to him that night and his will and his timing. And she said she prayed on Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and she leaned into God, and she was filled with a peace that she could absolutely not even explain. Ten days later, she got an email about a role that she had applied to and really forgotten about about a month prior to that, and it was a senior-level executive position, really, that she had forgotten about. She was verbally offered that job 16 days later, and then a couple days later, a written offer came. And, and by the way, she says, in that arena, that level of jobs, Stuff happening that quick just never, never, never happens. But she said, I'm quote her, when I finally surrendered, it was less than three weeks, and I actually got two other offers as well. And so she said God's blessings were just overflowing. Here's what she said happened. I'm going to call the worship team back up. She said, I have a deeper faith. She said, every day I go into my closet in my bedroom, and I turn the light off because that's the only way she says she can get away from Sean. But she goes in her closet in the dark with a flashlight and a shoebox. She puts her Bible on the shoebox, and she reads, and she digs into the Word. She says she's lost 50 pounds so far in the last four months. She said God provided the job a week after her unemployment ran out. The job's in Charlotte, which is way closer to Columbus, and she has a lot of family in Charlotte. She said, I only spent 40% of my severance and I saved 60%, which is way more than I would have saved if I'd have been working. Did that math make sense? Okay. She said, I get to use my skill set in the new job and build a team from the ground up. She said, I got to spend way more time with my family while I wasn't working. And then she said this, and I hadn't thought about this. She said, I managed to take seven months off. I reframed my life. I reframed my relationship with the Lord. I reframed my relationships with my family. She said, I reframed my goals, and I'm still financially whole at the end of the day. The last thing she said is this. She said, I learned, and I'm a quote or two, I learned so much from this process. I had no idea at the time I was laid off, and my world seemed to be falling apart, that this would be the best thing that had ever happened to me. Those are her words. 
She said, I can do, this is how she ended it, she said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And y'all, here's something, because as we're talking Tuesday, she kind of said maybe twice, um, she said, I just knew God was telling me there's more to come. She said, I just knew God that was telling me that he's got more for me. There's more to come in my life. And, and, and I think that God was impressing on Kelly the whole time, saying, my daughter, you know, there's more to come. I promise you, I promise you there's more to come. And y'all, Abraham, I am sure, thought that it was in his mind that it was impossible for him and Sarah to have a baby. But he believed anyway. In the midst of the circumstances being impossible, he believed anyway. No way, 100 years old, that they were about to have a baby. But he trusted and he had faith anyway. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because he believed, y'all, he believed that the promise maker is a promise keeper. It is about the object of our faith. It's not just the faith. It's about, because I can have faith in a rock. You know, Abraham was an idol maker. He could have all, he could have all the faith he wanted in the dumb piece of wood that his family made for people to worship to. But it wasn't that the faith in the wood doesn't make the wood God. It's the object. What's the object of your faith today? Is Jesus Christ the object of your faith? So the promise maker is a promise keeper. Now let me speak to you straight in, in, in 2020. And we've got thousands of years of history that we can look back on. Y'all, we've got no excuse. This promise-making God, man, he's the one that slew the giant through his servant David, who was a puny little runt, y'all. It was God that slew the giant through David. He's the God that ripped the walls of Jericho down. Y'all, he's a God that split an ocean open and over a million people walk through that ocean, split open. They get to the other side. The enemy's coming, and he closes it up and kills the enemy. He's the one that did that. He's the one, y'all, that at the end of the day, he's the one that raises the dead back to life. And so I don't know where you are today. I don't know. You may be suffering... It's a tough time in this world. You may be suffering massive disappointments. You may be stuck in the middle of absolute, utter despair. I don't know. I know there are people watching that that, that is a description of life today. But here's what I know that trumps that, that God may be saying, I know he's saying, my child, there's more to come. I promise you there is more to come. And he keeps his promises, y'all. You got to be one of his children, though. You know, you got to be one of his children. And if you've never said yes to the adoption, then let today be the day that you do say yes to that adoption. And we just went through chapter 4. And we just said it's not about the works. It's not about what you do. It's not about any of that stuff. It is simply about, Lord, I repent. I turn away from my sin and I turn towards you and I believe that you died on the cross to take care of my sin. And you get his righteousness. Get rid of the thought that you have to do something. Get rid of the thought that you have to be worthy. It's not about that. 
So if that's you today, I would beg you to say yes to that offer because we don't know what tomorrow brings. So if you're watching and you've been trying to please him and appease him all your life, you can't do it. You can't do it. So if y'all would bow your heads with me, and if that is you today, just pray this little prayer. And you know what? It's not the prayer that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. The prayer can, can let you know. The prayer is you begging and crying out to the Lord. Lord, today is the day that I repent of my sins. Today is the day that I ask you to save me. I repent of my sins, and I believe that you died on that cross to save me. Lord, save me right now. Let me tell you, man, if you did that, this second your sins are forgiven. This second that white robe of Christ is wrapped around you. So just say, Lord, I'm so thankful that you saved me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last thing I'll tell you, if that happened to you today, if you're watching online and that happened to you today, go to our website, fill out that little connection card and let us know. Let us know that happened. If you're sitting in this room right now and that happened, grab that connection card and let us know that it happened. I'm not going to tackle you in the parking lot. I just want to talk to you. I want to walk the journey with you. So there's more to come.